Hello and welcome to the week in 60 minutes, brought to you by Spectator TV and broadcast on 8th of June. I'm Cindy Yu, the Spectator's assistant editor and your host for this week. Coming up on the show, Prince Harry has been in London this week for the phone hacking trial against the Mirror. Freddie Gray writes the cover piece for the magazine about Harry's lonely crusade, the first royal to take the stand this century. Has the prince been badly advised by his lawyers? I'll be joined by Freddie Gray and former Sun journalist Neil Wallace. Rishi Sunak has arrived in Washington for a state visit with President Biden. Sunak clearly wants to be Biden's best friend, but is that love reciprocated? Katie Balls has the story. And is the World Health Organization beyond repair? That's what Christopher Snowden suggests in the magazine this week. From cozying up to authoritarian states to releasing questionable health advice, the WHO might well have lost its way. Christopher joins the show. It's now been revealed too that during the pandemic, the UK and US governments both worked with social media companies to clamp down on what they called misinformation about COVID-19. But what cost to freedom of speech does that come at? Author and journalist Michael Schellenberger has just begun a worldwide campaign against censorship. He joins me on the show. And finally, Oxfam released an odd video this week, seemingly to directly reference J.K. Rowling and calling her a turf. I'll be hearing all about what that word means and why Oxfam would care about it. Helen Joyce, the journalist, joins me. Before we get going, thanks to our sponsors, Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, for supporting the show. Canaccord are experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information. And if you enjoy Spectator TV, then do subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just click the subscribe button at the bottom of this video and tap the bell icon so you never miss an episode. First up, for the cover story this week, Freddie Gray has taken a look at Harry's loan crusade. Prince Harry is taking the stand against the mirror, which he accuses of hacking his phone. It's the first time a royal has taken the standing over a century, and the prince seems to be very much out of touch. Has he been badly advised? Freddie joins me now, together with journalist Neil Wallace, former deputy editor of the News of the World. Freddie and Neil, thank you so much for joining Spectator TV. Now, Freddie, you've written our cover piece this week about Harry's stand, or Harry's crusade, as it were. What have you made of it all? Has, it be, has he been convincing? I think it's been very embarrassing for him and, and quite humiliating. I think uh, the first day was the Tuesday, a day late, uh, but it was obviously... Couldn't miss his daughter's it birthday could, party. Couldn't, no, no, fair enough. <laughs> uh, but it was, that was particularly excruciating. And everybody's saying that yesterday went much better for him um, because he spoke about how he was doing it for Meghan and on a sort of emotional level it worked. But on a substantial level, or certainly not at a legal level, he didn't provide anything uh, very damning. Uh, he sort of drew a blank. And he, he has this line that he likes to say, which is, um, what's the, the pub there's a difference between the public interest and what interests the public. And I think he thinks that sounds very clever. I don't but know then, what that means. Well, the, the, the <laughs> barrister then asked him, well, what would be a public interest story? And he drew a blank. He couldn't think of a single one. And then he, went, and then he said, oh, uh, a life-threatening injury, maybe. Yes. Um, and I think that's quite telling of his mindset, that he thinks the only story that's of public interest about the royals is if one of them suffers a life-threatening injury. Um, Neil, I see you nodding here, and, and Freddie in his piece, you know, is almost competitive therapy, which Harry is quite used to these days, both treating the courtroom as a therapy session. Would you agree with that? Um, 
I think I do. I, I, I think what certainly comes through is that this is a really damaged guy and he's venting that damage yeah. on something he can focus on. So, you know, he's had all these years of damage and he's saying, uh, that's what's to blame. Mm -hmm. And that's what he's doing. He's made this into a, as your cover story talks about, he's made this into a crusade because that's the way he's been able to channel all his distress and upset that vomited out in those inter excruciating interviews with Oprah and in this dreadful book, Spare. This is, sadly, a very damaged young man. What he wants to do is, and what he's doing here, is he wants to blame the press. Because, frankly, that's easier mm. than actually looking at the issues that happened in his own life that maybe have more involvement. Yeah, and he's, he's annoyed about the scrutiny that the press put on him. But, you know, as we were talking about before we came on air, he's mentioned a lot of individuals in this court trial, probably without consulting them. Well, um, <clears throat> I think it's a particularly uh, nasty irony, actually. I think this is unpleasant, that he talks about his own um, uh, privacy being involved. In his one and a half days in the witness box, in his witness statement, he mentions his ex-girlfriend from at least 10 years ago, 118 times. Chelsea Davy gets mentioned 118 times in that document. Chelsea Davy dumped him 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Chelsea Davy actually got married and had her first child less than a year ago. Did he ask her permission that he could destroy her privacy to complain about his own privacy being invaded? I, I literally find that shocking. Mm. Well, I mean, it's classic. He <laughs> did it with others too. There were other people with the, with the spare, the, the book, mm -hmm. the memoir. Uh, you know, he didn't tell these people, or he told them at the very last minute that they'd been mentioned. And, and so, yeah, he doesn't think about the privacy of others very much. Uh, but that's one of the things that I think came through. You mentioned earlier when we were talking about him turning up a day late. The uh, privilege of his life, he totally ignores. He thinks he's got an absolute right to do whatever he wants to do. So uh, he turns up a day late um, and the court can just wait. He can come into this courtroom and um, he can uh, just say anything he likes. It's, it was summed up to me, for me, by this headline in today's Daily Mail. Barrister, are you aware there is any evidence, any evidence of hacking at all? Prince, no. I mean, come on, there is a hundred odd examples here. Example, and again, that in the Times, for instance, and in this morning's Telegraph, you look, and there is fact check, whereby they put up the claim. And, oh, look, it was in the News of the World the day before they put up the claim. Oh, it was in an interview he did with the press association, that he did with the press association. Everything is conjecture. Everything is tailored by his own desire for it to be suspicious. Yeah. To suit his argument. And reality bears has no connection, has it? No. I think he. I think he should be counting himself lucky that it's not filmed and recorded. Quotes like "I don't walk down streets" just seem so utterly bizarre. And you know, 
totally Prince Andrew in some ways. Um, Freddie, you write in your piece that he doesn't actually seem to have been very well prepared by his lawyers, or that he was taken on the ride by his lawyers. I mean, it does seem like there's a bit of here where Harry, does he really know what he's doing? It seems like his legal team are taking him for a ride. Yes. Uh, reading his extraordinary windbag witness statement, uh, I kept thinking, what sort of a legal team would let someone submit this as evidence? Because it, it read like, um, you know, the offcuts from Spare, the book. You know, the stuff that he didn't really get in there or his ghostwriter said, it's too, it's too crappy, that. Don't use that. Uh, and I don't think he's, I, I mean, I think he, he, but I think the real story here is that lawyers have made a lot of money out of hacking claims mm. uh, in the last 10 years. I mean, astronomical sums. But this is incredible because no hacking has been found to have done, been done in the last 10 years. So why are, they, why are the payouts still going on? Well, there's a certain amount of relitigating the past. And it's like a lot of things. When, a big, when big institutions have, have been proven to have done wrong, as they have, uh, they then have a guilty complex about it. And it's much easier just to settle. Mm-hmm. But they are these tabloid, the tabloid press are bleeding themselves to death, and they're already dying because the newspaper industry has suffered a lot in the last few years. Yeah, Freddie touches on something really interesting there about um, these about the allegations, the timescale of this. Mm. The truth of the matter is, the first arrest and the important adre- arrest that stopped ho- phone hacking in its tracks was in August two thousand and six. Mm. Since then, the Metropolitan Police have been all over this. They have had hundreds of officers will work on it for months at a time. So we're effectively talking about... Because the tabloid press were completely shocked to discover what they were doing were illegal. They thought it was iffy, but they didn't realise that it was criminal. So we're talking about stuff in terms of phone hacking that hasn't been happening for 17 years. We're talking about uh, this talk about, you know, control the press, etc. regulation. Leveson was in 2011 and 2012. That's 10 years ago, 11 years ago. This is regurgitating material that is just conjecture. Some of it is, I mean, phone hacking was appalling. It was wrong. It was damaging. People shouldn't be punished for it. You can't argue about that. But... What he is talking about and the way he's talking about it now is relating to distant history. And Neil, you were personally put through the ringer quite a lot during the time because you were a senior journalist at News of the World. Uh, you were cleared in 2015, but it was many years of your life trying to fight this. I mean, and now we're in 2023, still talking about it. How do you feel about that? It's eight years to today that uh, I was in the dock at the Old Bailey. I've been on bail for uh, four years, and I was in the dock at the Old Bailey fighting for my life for a month. Mm. And then 12 good British people and true found me not guilty. I was innocent. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm sort of pretty well aware of how this has dragged on. Yeah. But... As far as I'm aware, I think I was the last case. That is eight years ago. Mm. And so I actually think this is a car crash uh, for British justice, for the British justice system, because this is actually quite laughable what is happening here, if it wasn't so serious. The Prince Harry, in my opinion, is damaging the institution that is the British legal system because he's using it and abusing it and 
you are completely right when you were talking about the influence of lawyers keeping this alive because they have made millions. And the burden of proof seems to have to be pretty low. You know, a lot of these, as you say, Freddie, tabloids are more willing to settle out of court yeah. than to fight this in the court. So am I right in thinking that lawyers are, you know, bringing out these historical claims, getting a payout, and the tabloids just want it to all go away? Well, it does, you, I didn't want to get sued for saying this, but it does seem like a, a money-making <laughs> machine uh, in many ways. And what the lawyers are able to tap into is, is the, the, the grievance that a lot of celebrities feel, often understandably, about mm. their privacy being invaded. But what the celebrities want to do is convince themselves that they're changing the world for the better, when actually what they're doing is, is trying to placate their anger at the fact their privacy, as they feel it, has been invaded. And, and if they want to change the media landscape, which Harry now says is his life's work, uh, rather pompously, um, what they really need to do is change the culture because, you know, people are purely interested in people's lives. Uh, and if you want to stop that, then you have to change the way people think and the way people are. Um, and that's not necessarily a question for the media. And I would say that the tabloid uh, culture that he rails against, you know, of, of Diana, the 90s and noughties, that's also gone now, you know. It's, it's, we Sim don't intrude royal lives yeah. in the same way. It's I mean, simply oh, true. Yeah. Uh, and the death knell for it really, um, it started with the tragic death of Princess Diana because the British public were appalled by it. it the, another knell went into the coffin with phone hacking mm. uh, because... Uh, people didn't mind so much, to be honest, that when the phone hacking was uh, against celebrities. Millie Dowler changed everything. She was the girl who uh, disappeared, turned out she'd been murdered, and uh, there was an attempt to phone hack her phone by people who were trying to find out it, where she was, because initially she was thought to be a runaway. Um, but... The truth of the matter is that the media landscape has changed utterly. Freddie, in his excellent piece here, uh, talks about falling, cascading um, newspaper sales. Now, this was triggered, actually, largely by the internet, wasn't it? Mm. But The Sun now barely sells 700,000. When I worked as deputy editor of The Sun, um, it sold well over 4 million. You know, the, the Daily Mirror now runs... Uh, if it runs at any kind of profit, I will be surprised. Its circulation is in a few hundreds of thousands. Mm -hmm. These It used to sell two and a half million. So th th it's already changed to more than some effect. And it's a lot to do with the chilling effect of Leveson. And post-hacking, post-Leveson, privacy exploded in, in the courts. You just got a privacy injunction at the drop of a hat. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess Harry is still living in the past for quite a lot of this as well. I mean, Fred, finally, do you think there's a chance that he might win this case? It's a civil case, after all. Uh, you know, is there a chance that the judge decides that, that it is plausible that he was hacked and therefore gives it to him? Well, because it's civil, not criminal, I think that's possible. Because yes. um, it was interesting in the witness statements, a lot of it, what he was talking about, and this is why it sounded a lot quite whiny a lot of the time, was he was talking about the grievance that he'd felt. Mm. So I think there is a, a, quite a possibility that the judge will find damages because of the hurt that has been caused to Harry. Uh, but, uh, you know, is this, as we've discussed, this is not really about phone hacking. It's about feelings. Uh, and that's, that's a very different matter. And it's, not, it's so. not a criminal matter. Freddie Gray and Neil Wallace, thank you so much for joining Spectator TV. Next. 
Rishi Sunak is in Washington, meeting President Biden for the fourth time this year. What's he hoping to get out of the visit? With me to discuss this and the rest of the week in politics is our political editor, Katie Balls. Katie, welcome back to Spectator TV. Um, now, the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is in America uh, today as we speak, and he's about to see uh, President Biden. What are they going to be talking about? A range of things, security, trade, even though no one really expects a UK-US trade deal anytime soon. Also, uh, Ben Wallace, uh, the bid for him to be Secretary General of NATO. You can imagine um, Rishi to try and use this to do uh, some a light diplomatic push mm. in favour of the current Defence Secretary. And then artificial intelligence, which is something that I think particularly in the past fortnight, it feels as though Downing Street now really wants to talk about um, and is trying to carve itself a role on the world stage um, alongside the US as a country that will play an important role on the future of AI. Mm-hmm. And how is the personal relationship between Biden and Rishi Sunak? This is the fourth time they've met this year, but you can't help but feel that Rishi wants to be friends more than Biden wants to be friends. I feel this tends to be the case when it comes <laughs> to the UK and the US. So um, often the UK Prime Minister is seen as looking quite needy mm. and the US being um, perhaps just a bit too cool for school when it comes to how, how, how especially they find the UK Prime Minister. Um, but I think it's definitely fair to say that if you look at previous Prime Ministers, and we'll just go back the past two um, for uh, work of speed here. So Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, it feels as though Rishi Sunak has uh, a better foundation for his relationship with President Biden, but that's partly because he has taken active steps to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, the Windsor framework was clearly something which... Um, is in at least part aimed at trying to get America back on side. You know, Joe Biden has made lots of comments in the past about his concerns about the Northern Ireland Protocol, about his concerns about uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol bill, which would have unilaterally changed parts of it um, under both Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. And this was supposed to be a, a resetting moment, even though we're yet, of course, to return to power sharing in Stormont. Um, and, I, and I think generally um, the style of Rishi Sunak, you, you see much less in the way of uh, you know, grand statements or aggravating phrases. Uh, mm. There's a certain way of speaking, which Boris Johnson both his trust would do, which could, I think, sometimes be interpreted by the US as abrasive, whereas Rishi Sunak is much more mild-mannered. Now, of course, well, that really gets you results, I think, remains to be seen. But it's, I think it's for those reasons. Uh, when we're looking ahead, uh, when there are press conferences between Rishi Sunak and President Biden, it is much less, you know, get your popcorn out, as it was the case with the previous, if there was going to be some, uh, you know, butting of heads on stage. Yeah, and at least it's not as bad as Trump and Theresa May was yes. back when that was. <laughs> Though they did hold hands. Very awkwardly. (laughs) Um, And Katie, back home, where are we at with the COVID inquiry then? Is the government still fighting against the inquiry? So it officially um, began this week uh, with the opening statement from Judge Hallett, who is leading the judge-led inquiry. Um, But yes, as you point out, we're still in a a legal battle between the government and its own inquiry, which is an interesting way to kick things off. And I think just points to the level of discomfort in government about the inquiry. Um, now, something I wrote about in the magazine this week is how Rishi Sunak, of course, inherited this inquiry. It was set up under Boris Johnson. Uh, many of those in Downing Street at the time felt as though they did need to call an inquiry. He looked at the numbers of deaths. Um, I think since then, there are now concerns about the, is, is the scope too broad? We expect this, you know, evidence will, the final part of evidence is expected in 2026. Um, and... I think there's some concern too about the fact that, um, for example, you have Judge Hallett and there are some in government who say, well, look at some of her previous judgments. Mm. 
such as you know, sensitive material um, with MI5 during the 7-7 inquest where she did not side with MI5. She rejected those arguments for their lawyers. Um, it would suggest that she was someone who would want the release of lots of, lots of documents. Mm. Um, so you see a little bit of blame game in terms of how they've got to this position. Um, and we're waiting for the, uh, the result of the judicial review. But in a way... No matter what happens with that, and I think there's some scepticism the government will win, this isn't really about the COVID messages. That is a, uh, basically a, a legal question about those um, conversations between witnesses have been called, which are not strictly due to COVID and whether they should be released. Whereas the main COVID WhatsApp groups, the main COVID things, that is already what is being looked at. And I think the question is, are we going to learn anything new? Is the inquiry learning lessons in terms of decision making? Mm. Or if you look at some of the questions, for example, submitted to Boris Johnson, which is, did you say let the bodies pile high? Other witnesses, I understand, have been asked, did you hear Boris Johnson say let the bodies pile high? That is leading to a sense amongst Tory MPs. This is more about political point scoring or catching ministers mm. out than perhaps some of the, the bigger questions um, about was enough process given to data, were views which were... Um, you know, about the cost of lockdown sufficiently heard. And I think we've got to wait to see if that is really going to be part of this inquiry. Mm -hmm. And and speaking of Boris Johnson, he hasn't made this process easy by kind of stirring the pot a little bit about his WhatsApp messages and his diaries and what's going on there. But it does seem like Rishi Sunak is giving him a bit of an olive branch, whereas what's been billed as an olive branch in the form of signing off his honours list. Yeah, I mean, so this is the news that we are expecting Boris Johnson's much-awaited resignation honours list in the next few weeks and sign off from Rishi Sunak. Now, I don't think it was ever the case that Rishi Sunak was going to reject the mm. honours list. Um, if you look behind the scenes, it has been widely reported, including by the Spectator, that the original list, or at least the draft list, had over 100 names on it. There are reports by the Financial Times, by the Times, that um, not number 10, but um, I think officials, you know, a, a process which would not be directly related to ministers. Um, Boris Johnson has slimmed down the list. No comment from Boris Johnson on this. Of course, there have been reports <laughs> that his father, Stanley Johnson, was on the list at one point. Um, so, so there's a dog on the list as well. <laughs> exactly. So, what what is now being expected is a list of around fifty names, um, and uh, some of those could still be controversial if it's staff who worked during Partygate um, who are getting honours. Um, let's see if there are family members on that list um, at this point. Um, but but I think um, it was always going to be really contentious for everyone to actively reject the list. That's not really. Uh, the precedent for a Tory prime minister, particularly one that hasn't actually gone to the members, hasn't gone to the public. I think it would be very tricky territory. The question is, does Rishi Sunak, if this does create cronyism row, um, try and uh, say he's going to uh, change things going forward? Is he going to put a cap on the number he will put on a resignation on his list? There's an opportunity for Rishi Sunak to put some clear blue water between him and Boris Johnson still mm-hmm. um, if he chooses to take it. Katie, thank you so much. Is it time for Britain to cut ties with the World Health Organization? The giant international organization seems to have little idea of what its core mission is for these days and spends more time applauding unsavory regimes across the world than it does on preventing the next pandemic. Or at least that's what Christopher Snowden from the Institute of Economic Affairs argues in this week's issue. He joins me now. So, Christopher, welcome to Spectator TV. 
Now, your piece this week is quite a long charge sheet, I think, of all the things that the WHO gets wrong. Um, and I hope to get through quite a few of them um, in our interview. But first of all, it seems to be one of the major problems is sucking up to unsavoury regimes. Yes, yes. Uh, they, they, they've got a habit of doing that. The charge sheet is very long, but there's only a few examples, really, in that, in that article. Um, so, yeah, the, the thing that triggered it a little bit for me was the um, uh, putting North Korea mm. on the executive board. There's only... Uh, eight or nine countries on the executive board. They've got quite a bit of power to vote for regional directors and so on. And they put North Korea on there, you know. And I'm not saying that countries like North Korea should be kicked out of the club. I understand that international politics is a messy business. You need to keep people inside the tent. But the WHO seems to go beyond that and actively congratulating some of the worst regimes around, congratulating China on its COVID response, saying it was wonderfully transparent of all things, you know, um, and I think that goes too far. It seems unnecessary. And this is just, it happens again and again with the WHO and you, you just wonder why. Yeah. And so what about the argument then that some of these com- uh, countries with the worst uh, governments, North Korea or China, where it is, whatever it is, tend to be the developing countries that the WHO needs to have a foothold in? As you say, you're not saying but talking about kicking them out of the club. But I kind of, kind of understand why they need to be not just kicked out, but kept quite closely because the WHO's work should be tackling developing countries' health healthcare systems. Um, I, I don't think you need to go out of your way to applaud them mm. and suck up to them. I think that's the difference. It seems to be a feature, particularly under the current Director General, uh, Dr. Tedros, to really cozy up to these organisations, pat them up on the back, applaud them, not put any kind of pressure on them to, um, to, to reform in any kind of way. There hasn't been any pressure from the WHO for example, on China, get, telling us the truth about you know what happened in that lab, and indeed that inquiry that they just send over to China was really quite, quite limited by the Chinese government. Yeah, it was a farce, and uh, again, there wasn't any kickback uh, against that. But there's frequent condemnation of Israel, right? I mean, the same meeting. What did they condemn health... Israel for? Well, what you get is you know countries like Syria and Palestine. You know, a lot of the countries around Israel will get together and they'll, they'll table a motion con- condemning Israel. So you get Israel constantly condemned. North Korea doesn't get condemned at all. Uh, in fact, it gets put on the executive board. And how much of this do you think is a problem of funding? China is the WHO's second largest funder. Uh, in the last few years, Donald Trump stopped funding uh, the WHO, whereas America used to be the uh, top funder. So it leaves this organization needing to rely on the funding countries. Uh, well, yeah, but I mean, the UK, pound for pound, funds it more than anybody else. And we don't seem to get anything for that. Half a pound. Um, yeah, per, per capita. But we're easily the, the, the biggest funder of the WHO. Do we use that soft power in any way to try and get reform? Does anybody really try and use it to get reform? We should be seriously saying, um, look, if you don't change your ways, then we are going to pull this money. And we should be serious about it. And if the UK doesn't have the stomach for it, and I don't think it does, because it mm. just keeps dishing out more and more money for all sorts of different things, um, some other countries should do it. Now, that's not a popular thing to say, basically, because Donald Trump did it. Right. Donald Trump, for fairly naked, self-interested political reasons, said, I'm going to defund the, 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 the WHO. Um, but just because Donald Trump says something or does something doesn't necessarily mean it's a, the wrong thing to do. Mm, and during COVID, everybody pretty much accepted the WHO had dropped the ball, accepted there was a need for reform. There has been no reform whatsoever. The WHO is doubling down in all sorts of different ways. It's just been given an extra 20% funding from the member states. And as far as I can see, none of those member states are saying, well, we'd like to we'd like to see you clean up your act. I mean, maybe we'd like a new director general, for example. I mean, Dr. Tedros is... Um, judgment is absolutely appalling. You might remember he tried to appoint Robert Mugabe as goodwill ambassador early on. I mean, that's just, it's literally incredible. 
Mm. It's unbelievable that anybody would think that that's a good move, a good look, and yet he did it. And in a way, that illustrates how broken this organization is because any other organization on earth, you would think, including probably even FIFA, would say, <laughs> we're not going to appoint Mugabe as a goodwill ambassador. Even if we secretly like him for whatever reason, yeah. we're not going to do it. But it took an international backlash for them to rescind that appointment. And what's also interesting is that in the last few years, the WHO seems to have changed its focus. So moving away from the infectious diseases that maybe people associate them with, you know, as you say in your article, it dines out on ending smallpox in the world. But moving more towards stuff like anti-vaping and anti-drinking, all of these non-communicable diseases. Yeah, and I think that's a problem because I, I really think the WHO needs to be more focused in, in what it's there for. Mm. And really it's there to try and eradicate infectious diseases, to prevent, uh, prevent pandemics, to tackle um, pandemics when they arise. They sh they've shown time and time again, whether it's Ebola, Zika, COVID, yeah. that they're really flat-footed. And surely it can't be helping that they are diverting so much of their energy and resources towards things like announcing people shouldn't eat artificial sweeteners. Okay, so this is only a few weeks ago. WHO says artificial sweeteners uh, don't help you lose weight and cause cancer possibly. Now, to be fair, the evidence on artificial sweeteners is pretty, pretty dodgy, like most nutritional epidemiology. Mm. But people, I think, assume that the WHO is, like, has the final word on this because it's the WHO. Because they, yeah, they, we, the we all know what they are, yeah. it's got a halo effect, they eradicated smallpox. But what actually happens with the WHO is when you get any issue which is scientifically controversial, whether it's artificial sweeteners or vaping or what have you, they don't you know, get a whole load of impartial experts in to mm. really look at the evidence like a Cochrane review might do. They pick a side and they get the people from that side to write a report. That's basically what oh, happens. We know that, do we? Very, that, that, that's very often uh, they'll do it anonymously. You don't even know who these people are, although often they're, they're, they're British as it happens. And so there's this focus on sort of Western nanny state lifestyle issues partly because of their funding. Mm. I mean, because they do get funding from people like Mike Bloomberg, the billionaire who's fanatically against vaping, and they, he's a goodwill ambassador as well now. Um, and they get diverted by the interests of people in the West, because the West, apart from COVID-19, haven't been that interested in infectious diseases because it's not really that big a problem. They're interested in sugary drinks and alcohol and so on. And so you get these reports coming out from the WHO, which are really just written by partisans. They're not definitive by any means, and often they're, they're simply wrong. They put out a a guide for journalists to tell journalists how to report on issues related to alcohol, which is just full of errors. Mm. Um, so they need to stick to their knitting, as they say. They need to focus on, on what they do. And Public Health England had exactly the same problem. They completely dropped the ball on the pandemic, I think largely because they were obsessed with taking sugar out of biscuits and telling people to do this and, and you know, open a window when it's a hot day. Is it also because it's cheaper to put forward these press releases on preventative healthcare things than it is to actually think about pandemic prevention? Where, where does the next problem come from. I think it's easier. Yeah. I think that's the thing. It's a lot easier to go around and tell governments, oh, you should be banning alcohol advertising mm -hmm. or you should be regulating e-cigarettes uh, more stringently and so on. And they feel that's a win. That's something we can come back and say, well, we've got this, uh, we've got this done. But, you know, with the vaping especially, it's so counterproductive. This is the worst thing about it. I mean, vaping, as the UK has proven, is an incredibly effective way of getting people off smoking. And the WHO has advised to member states and we don't pay much attention to WHO advice because we don't need to, but a lot of developing countries do. Right. They don't have their own health, health agencies to, uh, and scientists to really look at the, the evidence. They just take whatever the WHO says as gospel. And the WHO says basically regulate these things into the dirt if you can't ban them completely. And they, you know, this um, only a few days ago, Tedros 
was at a press conference, got managed to get onto the subject of e-cigarettes somehow, and said that most kids who try vaping end up smoking, which is just not true. Like this, pretty much the opposite of the truth, right? Since we've seen vaping take off, even amongst younger people, you know, smoking rates have plummeted. So on that particular issue and a few more, what mm. they're doing isn't just kind of unnecessary and a waste of money. It's actually counterproductive for public health. Mm-hmm. And finally, Christopher, what would you like to see happen then? Because, you know, you talk about reform and if they don't reform, the UK should take its money and walk away. But I would think that there's still a need for some kind of international health organisation. Is it just too big in its current form? Is it that its funding's not enough? What is it in your ideal world if Christopher Snowden ran the world? <laughs> well, one or two people, even during the pandemic, including David Cameron, came up with the idea of essentially setting up a rival World Health Organisation mm-hmm. that would be only focused on infectious diseases. A little bit, again, the parallel with Public Health England. When, when Matt Hancock closed that down, he set up the UK Health Security Agency, which he said would be laser-focused on infectious diseases. And so far it has been. It hasn't been off dabbling with with the you know, ingredients in, in biscuits. Um, it's a pretty good idea because I think, I'm afraid, the World Health Organization is unreformable. I don't think, and there's, no, there's clearly no will within the organization to, to reform it. It has more or less been trolling the world since COVID by doing things like appointing North Korea and coming up with all these ridiculous announcements and telling, um, telling schools that they should be teaching toddlers about masturbation, you know, this insane stuff. Um, it seems to me they almost want to be closed down. We can't close them down. We shouldn't close them down overnight, obviously. But I think the idea of setting up some kind of rival organisation which will eventually outcompete mm-hmm. the WHO with pandemic preparedness, um, I think that's probably the way forward. And if people like Bill Gates and less likely Mike Bloomberg put their money into that kind of thing, um, that, that's a very real possibility. And that could happen in a relatively short period of time without any disruption, I would say. Very interesting. Christopher Snowden, thank you so much for joining Spectator TV. Next, recently The Telegraph revealed that the British government had not one, but two separate units designed to monitor online content for discussions surrounding the pandemic. It meant that the posts of high-profile lockdown sceptics, people like Oxford's Carr Hennigan, were flagged by the government to social media companies as misinformation. You can just imagine the stifling effect on diversity debate during that pandemic. Free speech campaigners are arguing that this is a pattern across the world, that censorship is not just a problem limited to authoritarian states. One of them is with me now, the author and journalist Michael Schellenberger. So, Michael, your campaign to promote freedom of speech first came about uh, from the Twitter files in the United States, but it's now rolled out to a global campaign. Can we just start with, in your eyes, what is the problem, what's happened to freedom of speech right now? Well, what we're looking at is a a, a very interesting and disturbing simultaneous crackdown on free speech that's happening across the English-speaking world. It's happening in the UK, in the United States, Canada, New Zealand, Australia. It's also happening in Brazil very aggressively, but we also see the European Union um, preparing to impose uh, new regulations on speech. Uh, In all these cases, they're, they're... offering uh, seemingly benign or benevolent reasons for this. Uh, But these are very serious measures that are being put in place that are aimed at uh, censoring uh, people online. And it comes in the context of revelations that both the United States, the the UK, and many of these other countries have in fact been pressuring social media companies to to censor disfavored views and even deplatform disfavored users. And so it's really, I think, one of the most significant threats to freedom of speech, uh, certainly since the creation of the internet 
and and perhaps over the last hundred years. And I think it's one of those things that might have just gone under the radar, especially for people who don't maybe spend much time on social media. But, you know, I, I just want to start by talking to you about the Twitter files, which is the story that you are one of the main journalists reporting on it. Elon Musk, the new CEO of Twitter, gave you these files. And what do they reveal? Well, the, the first thing that we discovered the Twitter files was much of what people had suspected, which is that it's a very uh, progressive left-wing staff at Twitter, and they were censoring uh, views mostly of conservatives on a range of topics. But we quickly then discovered the involvement and a significant amount of communications from U.S. government officials, as well as with U.S. government contractors that were urging censorship of specific views. So the most dramatic was around the 2020 elections and around the 2021 campaign to basically uh, fight any resistance or concerns around vaccines. And so some of the most dramatic evidence has uh, come out from a separate uh, set of uh, documents that were done by a lawsuit for the attorneys general of Missouri and Louisiana, where we had officials in the White House uh, effectively bullying uh, Facebook staff to censor uh, people's experiences with vaccine side effects. And these were often true. These were true uh, uh, vaccine side effects. And they were censoring them anyway because they worried that it would create hesitancy around taking the vaccine. So what we saw was a very similar approach uh, between what happened here in the United States, what happened in Britain with the lockdown files where you saw uh, uh, Hancock, I believe is the name of your government minister, who emailed and had correspondence with Nick Clegg, also a former UK government official who was, now, who was then at Facebook. Very, very similar dynamic here in the United States. But we've basically seen this on a range of issues, ranging from uh, election to uh, COVID, climate change. And the, one of the latest things that we've seen is people uh, really trying to drum up this idea that there's been an increase of hate speech. Uh, there's no evidence for that and uh, or of hateful incidents. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that people are just expanding their definition of what hateful speech is. And so we now see basically different excuses or predicates being offered by government officials and government contractors for greater social media censorship. Yeah, and you say that this is a global problem because on the question of hate speech, I believe there's a bill going through uh, the Irish uh, legislative at the moment, which would basically designate a lot of things as hate speech um, to have that same chilling effect that you're talking about. Yeah, the Irish uh, legislation is quite shocking in how frankly, totalitarian it is. It allows police to go into people's homes unannounced uh, uh, to look for so-called hateful material on their computers and phones uh, without a warrant. It, it presumes guilt. In other words, if you have those materials that are deemed hate, hateful materials, you're presumed that you are going to disseminate them. Some of the censorship demands have, have been uh, seem strategic, such as trying to stop uh, vaccine hesitancy. Other kinds of censorship demands we've seen have been very petty and have been by politicians who are upset that they're being criticized in social media. And so I sort of smile because it seems slightly ridiculous, but if you're familiar with some of the mentality of politicians or elected officials, often that is the level at which their brains are operating. But that's kind of precisely the forms of speech that we should allow first and foremost. I mean, arguably the most important kinds of speech are the kinds criticizing our elected leaders since we need to 
properly criticize them and have a debate about them in order to decide who to elect. Of course. And and bringing it back to the UK as well, um, you know, Michael, you mentioned uh, those Hancock files. Uh, the Spectator was very much covering that. We spoke to the journalist who leaked those, Isabel Oakeshott, who was his ghostwriter at the time. And recently we've heard from uh, journalism done by The Telegraph about these two government units uh, within British government that during the pandemic was basically monitoring social media content, flagging the ones that are basically against the mainstream, whether it's on vaccine or lockdown or anything else uh, to social media companies as well. So I absolutely agree with you that it does seem to be happening here as well. But what do you say to people who think that actually, especially during a time like the pandemic, when the science is not clear, that actually tackling disinformation and misinformation is incredibly important and that actually this is people getting it wrong in the, in the margins, but the idea of not perfect freedom of speech on online platforms, especially during a time when people's lives are at risk, you know, is no bad thing. You know, we have to clamp down on conspiracy theory. So it depends on where you draw that line. Yeah, and there, there, I think it's important to keep in mind that the word and concept of disinformation comes out of militaries. And it's been uh, all governments um, engaged in disinformation campaigns against foreign adversaries. Uh, I think we all agree that we do not want our government engaging in disinformation campaigns against us. Um, we know that governments engage in uh, their own public relations or propaganda, uh, but obviously we don't want to be uh, victimized by disinformation campaigns. The problem is that what happened, at least in the United States, a very clear shift is that you started to see it even in the discourse of the people advocating censorship, is they started to say, well, really the disinformation isn't coming as much from the Russians anymore. It's really coming from American citizens. Well, that's a way of saying that they disagree with things that American citizens are saying. But when you call it disinformation, it suggests a, a nefarious motivation that people are deliberately lying. And certainly people do deliberately lie. And we all have laws against uh, committing fraud, for example. But really what was being classified um, in some cases is just disagreement. And in other cases, it was people sharing their personal experience of vaccine side effects that they genuinely had. And um, the, one of the principles that we have of free speech is that we think it's a fundamental right to be able to say what you believe. We have a fundamental right to be wrong. In fact, being wrong is often a part of being right. It's, that debate is important for societies to get questions right. So in the middle of a pandemic is precisely the time when you would want to have divergent voices, you would also want to have government saying, uh, no, these things are not true or they are true. But what you don't want is the government in a position where it's disallowing that debate. And so the vaccine example is very important. I mean, there was a lot of effort to require pharmaceutical companies to list the side effects of their pharmaceutical drugs in their advertising. That was considered a very important progressive victory. So to have the government uh, demanding that social media platforms censor information about the side effects of drugs or pharmaceutical uh, interventions is quite uh, chilling and disturbing. And it, I think that it may mean that there would be more vaccine hesitancy, uh, but that's, I think, a small price to pay for protecting our freedom of speech. And I think, look, in that particular case, I, I, was, I think that the consensus, and I certainly was vaccine, I was vaccinating myself and boosted, so I'm not an anti-vaxxer by any means, but I do think that the uh, there were some populations that did not need to have the vaccine, and um, they should have been been allowed to have that debate and have that concern. In fact, one of the things that we saw censored by Twitter 
was a Harvard professor named Martin Kildorf, who's actually suing the U.S. government right now for saying that not everybody necessarily needs the vaccine. That's actually a fairly mainstream view at this point. But in the pandemic, it was one of the things that was censored. And, and indeed, an Oxford professor called Carl Hennigan, who was raising questions over the effectiveness of face masks and a contributor to The Spectator, was flagged down uh, for some of his content that he did with The Spectator as well. Um, and finally, Michael, what would you like to see be done here? Because in my mind, it seems to me um, a lot of the problem here comes down to big tech working hand in glove with government when these big techs uh, tend to lean liberal or left wing, whatever you want to call it, and they're unelected. And that is a problem. It's also a problem that their public forums in a way that everyone simply uses them. Free speech we're talking about is a lot of it is digital free speech these days. But what is the way to tackle that without also kind of going too far the other direction of making uh, the internet a lawless place? There has to be some level of content moderation, I think you would agree. So, so what would you like to see be done? Well, I think the most important thing is that I think countries... Uh, should have free speech protections that are as strong as we have in the United States. We have the First Amendment to our Constitution provides very broad protections. We do not allow a government agency to be involved in regulating speech. I think most people across the Western world and really all over the world would like to have that American free speech standard. And there is a proposal in Britain uh, to, to uh, reform your laws so that the British uh, system is much closer to the American system. And um, so I think that's the most important thing. We want we want to help people around the world. And that's why we're coming to London June 22nd to the 23rd to bring people from around the world that would like to have stronger free, free speech protections in their own countries. Even in the United States, we saw this effort, which was by the Department of Homeland Security to basically create uh, uh, NGOs to engage in the censorship work, even though the NGOs were government funded. Um, they had to try to do a workaround because of the awareness of the First Amendment. In Britain, it was the counter disinformation unit that was a government unit. That unit, in my view, if I were British, I would not want that unit to exist. I would rather not have a government uh, speech entity. In terms of the social media platforms, uh, there is a variety of them. The two most important are obviously Twitter and Facebook, and arguably Twitter is even more important because of the amount of information density and the potential of the technology to allow speech to go viral. We're in the midst of a lot of pressure that's on uh, the owner of Twitter to censor people even more. Some of it's coming from government, some of it's coming from corporations. Um, I have uh, personally and publicly encouraged uh, Elon Musk to uh, make transparent all censorship decisions that have to do with you know social and political issues. I mean, getting rid of channel, child pornography is not controversial. Uh, but I think when he is asked, for example, as he was by the Turkish government and really required by the courts to engage in censorship, I think he did the right thing by publishing the government requests on Twitter, as well as the Twitter accounts that they want to have censored. So there, I think there is um, governments should not they cannot require social media platforms to communicate certain things. That's also a violation of our freedom. Um, and that you can't have a government regulator that is focused on getting involved in the day-to-day -day content moderation and censorship decisions of a platform like Twitter. But I do think governments can require that social media platforms be transparent about those censorship decisions that they're making. They can immediately report what they're doing. And I think there should be a place for some appeal of those censorship decisions by individual users so that if they're being censored, then at least there's a public discussion about their censorship.
And I would also then have a mandate that all government officials that ever ask for anything by the social media companies, whether it's the promotion of speech or the censorship of speech, also be immediately required to make that public. It could be done very easily through an automated email system that would that would allow people to see what those demands were and what the levels of compliance by the social media companies were. Very interesting. Michael Schellenberger, thank you very much. And you're coming to Westminster on June 22nd. So if viewers at home want to catch Michael, Matt Taibbi and Russell Brand, you can do that there. Thanks, Michael. And we have a new offer for The Spectator magazine. If you subscribe to The Spectator today, you'll get your first month completely free. And after that, you'll just pay £1 a week for full access to our website and app. Or £2 a week if you want the print magazine too. To claim this offer, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash best. And finally, an odd video was released by Oxfam this week. Have a watch. How are you marking Pride Month this year? While LGBTQIA plus people around the world are deprived of basic safety, not protected by laws, preyed on by hate groups online and offline. What was purportedly a positive video in support of the LGBT community had one illustration of so-called TERFs. It wasn't long before viewers pointed out that this looked remarkably like the author J.K. Rowling. Oxfam quickly took down the video and re-uploaded an edited version with that particular screen taken out. Is it really the role of charities like Oxfam to be wading in on the debate surrounding trans rights? Well, I'm joined now by the journalist Helen Joyce. Well, that's quite something, isn't it, Helen, that video? Um, thank you so much for joining us today. What were your first reactions when you saw that? I looked at it and I thought that this is in the long tradition of disgusting, bigoted, propagandistic videos attacking human rights activists. So if you look back, you can see uh, people who were campaigning to keep slavery, doing parodic pictures of black people with you know animalistic features mm. and big thick lips. Yeah, and then you, you go forward a bit and you see the suffragists and the suffragettes caricatured as, you know, harridans uh, with padlocks through their mouths, you know, with the captions saying she wants the vote in this idiotic, stupid woman. And then a bit further forward, you know, the in, in, during the civil rights movement, or you look at pictures of Jews with big hook noses, looking like goblins. And now we've got, again, we've got women's rights campaigners being caricatured to look like vile, shrews, dried up, harridans. Witches. witches, witches, absolutely witches. It is just not plausible to see this any other way than a way to denigrate women who are trying to speak up for women's rights. Mm -hmm. And also with the badge turf on it as well. I mean, just Helen, just tell viewers what that term means in case anyone doesn't doesn't know. And I'm, I'm sure well, it's short for, for a trans exclusionary radical feminist, but it's a ridiculous term because very few people are radical feminists, and nobody is trans exclusionary. Mm. What 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 women are doing is they're saying that male and female are real categories, and that female people's rights do on occasion require the recognition of those being real categories and nice. excluding males. <laughs> yeah. So there are places that I would exclude all males from and it wouldn't matter whether they're trans-identified or not. And I don't regard myself as a radical feminist. So it's just like saying, you know, uh, I don't know, global elite or something when you mean Jew. You know, it's it's just a, a front it's word. A it's, it's a slur. It's a front word. Um, and there's no way people say, well, it's just uh, it's just an acronym. But that's like saying, you know, the four letter shortening of Pakistani is just a shortening of Pakistani or that, you know, the N word is just a mispronunciation of Negro, which is what people used to call black people. These are not plausible. Slurs are proved by the way they're used.
Mm-hmm. And this isn't the first time that Oxfam has taken this stand on gender issues. Back in March, they told their staff to avoid using potentially offensive terms such as mothers and fathers. Now, I didn't know that those were offensive terms. Well, anything that indicates that there are two sexes is now offensive because we're meant to be entirely uh, focused on people who deny that fact and who also aren't happy with their own sex. So I distinguish those two groups. There are trans people who aren't happy being the sex that they are. And some of them are quite realistic about that. They know what their sex is. They know it makes them unhappy. They're perfectly easy and nice to talk to. And then there's other ones who want the whole world broken to fit them back into the sex category that they're not. And then there's a much larger penumbra of people who think of themselves as allies for whom it's extremely important to deny the fact that there are two sexes. And so those are the people who are destroying women's rights, destroying children's education, are destroying gay people's rights because you can't have sexual orientation without sex. Mm -hmm. They're willing to break absolutely everything in order that some men can count as women and some women can count as men. Mm-hmm. And is your, is your position, you know, you say that uh, the, one of the reasons that TERF doesn't work as a term is because you're not actually trans-exclusionary, but you did say, you know, you would exclude trans people from certain areas. Male trans people from female. Yeah. But female people who are trans-identified, of course they're welcome in. Mm-hmm. So it's just about male and female. I don't even care really about trans or trans identification. I care about the actual real categories, male and female. In particular, I'm a campaigner for female people's rights, which do require us to be able to draw boundaries. Can you understand where Oxfam might be coming from here? They take, took the video down initially, and then they've, what have they said about it? So they took it down because there's a scene in this that cannot possibly plausibly be denied to be based on JK Rowling. So there's, you know, there's this picture of this shrewish, witchish looking woman wearing a dress that's very like a particular picture of J.K. Rowling with a particular badge that J.K. Rowling was wearing, actually a poppy turned into the turf badge. I don't know for sure, but I would be surprised if they didn't get a call from some libel lawyers as soon as the video went up. So they took it back down um, and they took that out. And as far as I know, they put it back up. But I also have seen, because it's been published on Twitter, um, the internal email that they sent to all staff about it, in which they said that this was a procedural error and that um, they accept that gender critical beliefs are protected under UK law, which they are ever since Maya Forstatter's case. Mm-hmm. And that means that you can't, you can't be so bigoted against people who believe that sex is real as they just have been. But then they go on to say it's very difficult to um, combine the belief that sex is real with other people feeling that that attacks their identity. And they come down pretty hard on the side of the identity. They, they say that you know, any staff who've been upset by all of this pushback against the video can call and get counselling and there's trauma services and all the usual bullshit that we do nowadays whenever anyone claims to be offended. <laughs> and that uh, they are proud of their, um, their trans allyship and they continue to celebrate it and so on and so forth. Honestly, this email was sent out in the UK by someone senior in Oxfam's UK offices. I I wouldn't be surprised if that email just continues to repeat the um, discrimination against Oxfam's gender critical staff. I'd be interested to hear what an employment lawyer said about it. Yeah, very interesting. And, and then they've put the video back up, but without that uh, reference, that scene referencing, well, it's, it's hard to deny that. It was, it was hard yeah. to deny that. It is oh, they can try it, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be the lawyer. <laughs> but do, can you see where um, Oxfam and other companies um, who kind of go into this space uh, are coming from? You know, it's Pride Month this month, you know. LGBT the holy people, month of pride, yes. The holy month of pride. LGBT people are some of the most marginalised people around the world, especially for, you know, an organisation like Oxfam, which works in the developing world so much. You know, they are marginalised people. And I don't think we would deny that trans people have a difficult time in a lot of society. But so can you see where they're coming from when they say that we want to show some kind of solidarity 
as I understand it, your position is more, it's where those trans rights come in conflict with the women's rights. That's the problem. We shouldn't automatically give the former priority. But trans people do have a tough time in society. I think if you think about what Oxfam was set up to do, which is to feed women and children in disaster zones, I'm sorry, I'm not willing to bend over backwards to the extent that you're just bending over backwards. LGBT people do have a tough time. Women and children also have a tough time. Oxfam is meant to be working in the developing world. And it's the majority of its donations come from women, the people who staff its mm. charity shops around the world are middle-aged and elderly women who by and large, like as in almost all of them, will completely agree with JK Rowling's stance on all of this and are doing this work because they care about the women who die in childbirth, they care about the children who are starving, they care about the innocent victims of war, earthquake, famine, etc. So no, I don't, I don't bend over backwards on this. And I say this as the mother of a gay son and he'd agree with me. Mm. You know, their focus should be on the half of humanity, women, yeah. who are the innocent victims in these situations. They should be thinking about mothers, they should be thinking about babies, and they've lost their focus. They don't know what a mother is. They don't know what a mother is. It's, it's, it's just, you know, once you start down this rabbit hole of thinking that, you know, men are the world's most marginalised people as long as those men think they're women, mm. you've lost all touch with reality and you turn yourself 180 degrees around from what your original mission was and you start talking this sort of nonsense and then you end up producing bigoted propaganda like this. And finally, Helen, I mean, so many of these issues are coming to a fore because of organisations, whether corporate or charity, trying to get in on this uh, on this movement. You know, Bud Light and Nike recently in America, you know, had Dylan Mulvaney um, as one of the advertising and had massive backlash. So are you heartened by the fact that shareholders and consumers seem to be pushing back at this being kind of shoved down their throats? It's just the beginning of the fight back, honestly, because this stuff has been embedding in corporate culture for so long. And you have to remember, corporations, I mean, they're amoral creatures. They do whatever they think is easiest for them. And there's a big fashion at the moment for virtue signaling, which doesn't go very well with being profit driven. Mm. So if you're told that you have to be environmentally friendly and you have to be focused on EDI, equity, diversity and inclusion, you're not going to think you know, how do we support disabled staff? How do we make sure that mothers are able to get back to work? You know, could we help care leavers to get jobs with us? Those would all be excellent things to do, but actually hard. You're looking for the cheapest. The most visible. The mo yeah, cheap and visible. Yeah. You know, putting the trans flag on your website, mm -hmm. saying something about Pride Month, uh, forcing everyone to put pronouns in their email signature, and, uh, you know, telling people that the words mother and father are bigoted. Helen Joyce, thank you so much for joining Spectator TV. You're very welcome. That's it for this week. Once again, thanks to Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management for sponsoring the week in 60 minutes. Canaccord will provide you with the expertise you need to help build your wealth with confidence. Visit candowealth.com for more information. Thanks again for watching and do join us next week.